0: Hey there, I'm Ruby Jones, the host of Schwartz Media's daily news show, 7am. This is The Weekend Read. Every fortnight on the show, we feature the best long-form journalism in Australia, read to you by the people who wrote it. Today, we have something a little different, a tribute to publisher, poet and memoirist Robert Adamson. Robert died late last year, and to mark that moment, the Monthly decided to posthumously republish two of his essays on a subject very dear to him fishing. Today on the show, Michael Williams, editor of The Monthly, reading Robert Adamson. Michael, thank you so much for speaking with us. How would you describe Robert Adamson's role in Australian literature?
1: Look, it's uh, there are very few poets who kind of make it through to the wider consciousness, both here in Australia and overseas. And Bob's contribution, both as a poet and as a publisher and as a kind of figure in the scene, uh, loomed pretty large over his life. So when he died in December of last year, he was diagnosed with cancer and went into a decline relatively quickly. But there was this kind of pilgrimage that happened of Australian writers, all of whom had been touched by his work one way or the other, and all of whom made their way out to his home on the banks of the Hawkesbury, where he lived with his Uh, wife and partner and collaborator, Juno Games. And they would just sit beside his bed and chat to him and and kind of commune with him. And by all accounts, it was kind of this gorgeous farewell.
0: Mm. And the piece that you're about to read, it's a beautiful meditative piece, but it's about fishing. What is it that drew you to publishing this work in particular?
1: Ruby, you're going to be shocked to hear that I'm not the rugged outdoorsman that I kind of project to the world. Obviously, people see me and they think that guy likes getting his hands dirty. He's like out there camping all the time. I do not know one end of a fishing rod from the other. And uh, before reading this piece, I should apologise to any fishing aficionados. I don't want your letters telling me I got the name of some particular line wrong. I just don't. I'm sorry I got it wrong. Uh, But it's almost beside the point. When uh, it was clear that Bob was dying and we wanted to find a way to kind of acknowledge his contribution in the pages of the Monthly, We had a number of options. You know, he wrote many beautiful poems. We thought about getting someone to write an obituary or a tribute. But we came across these amazing pieces he wrote for Fishing World magazine back in the 80s. And Bob lived on the banks of the Hawkesbury. He fished in the Hawkesbury for over half a century. You know, almost every day he would go out and do it. And apart from his great love of birds, the love of the natural world and the love of being there, out fishing was something that kind of really defined him, and so we felt that these two brief essays offered an insight into uh, the relationship between his kind of inner life and the kind of prosaic day to day of getting out there and catching his beloved fish.
0: Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us, and I'm um, looking forward to hearing you read his pieces. Thanks, Ruby. Coming up after the break, Michael will read Days on the Hawksbury by Robert Adamson. The Saturday paper's food editors are some of the country's leading chefs, including Andrew McConnell, Otama Carey, David Moyle, and Karen Martini. Let them guide your cooking when you sign up to Schwartz Media's free weekly newsletter, The Food. It features the latest recipe from The Saturday Paper, along with a selection of seasonal dishes suitable for all cooks. Subscribe today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters.
1: Days on the Hawkesbury by Robert Adamson 1. The Tobacco Tin Jewel Box In winter on the river, July, August, when it was blowing a gale and raining, the fishermen would sit at the bar in the anglers' rest and look out at the trees bending on the mountain behind the gut. Old Dutch, Dutchy Kerslake's dad, Moose, Phil, Bigfoot and old Fafa, my grandfather, they'd sit there drinking beers with rum chasers and tell stories and complain about the weather. Back in those days, the money paid by the co-op for a big jewfish, a 60 to 70 pounder, could feed a family for a week Catches of these great fish weren't rare, but they didn't happen on a regular basis. A month could pass between catches. Other times there'd be four or five caught in a matter of weeks. The professionals have always caught more jewfish in lines than nets. In fact, it's a very rare thing to get one in the nets. The big fish usually go straight through the fine mesh, especially in those days before nylon. Jewfish are beautiful looking creatures, kings of the river. And after World War II, the fisheries officially renamed them mulloway, and they're sold under that name. But most fishermen just call them Jew, or Jewies. They say the first name for them was jewelfish, because if you split their head apart in behind the eyes, there sits like a third eye, a little pearl-like bone, like a gland in front of the brain. Mulloway can grow up to seven feet and can weigh up to 150 pounds. Usually the big ones are between 60 and 80 pounds. The bigger the fish, the bigger the jewel. And these are beautiful things, like a real pearl. Irregular, round and sometimes tear-shaped, they shine with an opalescent glow in sunlight. The jewels aren't worth taking unless the fish is at least 40 pounds. In the winter, as it blew a gale, the old codgers remembered the great fish in their lives and discussed the ways they'd been caught. All the top men carried old tobacco tins, golden flake, woodbine, and these tins had beautiful designs painted on the lids. Each fisherman had his tin, and some carried them around for years. Some had been handed down by their fathers. Inside these tins, they carried their jewels. When a drunken discussion started to go on the turn, before fists were thrown, some old bloke would just reach into his coat and take out the tin. With a movement resembling some strange ritual... The arm stretched out and a gnarled, black, freckled hand placed a tin on the bar. Then the old codger would say in a loud voice as he thumped the bar, Right! Things were sorted out. Whose fish was bigger in the winter of 42 or whatever? Old Dutch or farfar? Out came the tobacco tins. Silence. What a wonderful picture, these old gentlemen of the river, all opening their lids and carefully holding their jewels in sometimes very trembling hands. They'd place him on the bar, then the one with the largest jewel would put it back and break the silence by rattling his tin in front of the others, shaking it like a gambler shakes dice, muttering his charm or curse. Then the barman would start pulling beers. They all had to buy the winner a midi each, ten or so beers. Old Fafa would chuckle at the thought. 2. Hawkesbury Bream, The Lighter Side it's six in the morning, the tide is full and the water surface of the bay I'm fishing is glass. The line flicks off my little Mitchell. Fine as a strand of silk, it travels across the top of the water. I click back the bale and lift the rod sideways. A bream bucks under and the line cuts through the water. With the two-kilo maxima pulling out from the reel's ultra-smooth drag and my sanded-down ugly stick cushioning the bream's struggle... I guided in carefully through the mangrove roots to my net. On days like this, when everything works out perfectly and you're casting into the Hawkesbury mangroves on light tackle for bream, all the trouble and care you've put into your preparation is more than worth it. I've been fishing the Hawkesbury for 30 years now and still find this type of fishing one of the most rewarding experiences you can have. But to make it work and to catch fish... A lot of thought and planning must go into it. I can still remember the first fish I caught on the Hawkesbury, on school holidays, when I was about ten, from the public wharf at Brooklyn. In those days, I was used to catching yellowtail and slimy mackerel on hand lines from the wharves at Balmoral and the Spit, with long shank hooks and no lead. Well, I tried the same at Brooklyn. I remember not being able to see through the muddy water and thinking I didn't have much of a chance. It was so different to the clear water and sand at Balmoral. I couldn't believe it when my line shot off under the wharf and I hooked into a big bream. From that day on I returned again and again, each time discovering more about Hawkesbury bream. These days, with our sophisticated high-tech tackle, super lures and wonder wobblers, we often overlook some of the most effective and most pleasurable skills of fishing. My approach is to copy nature as much as possible, to pay great attention to bait and the way it is presented. I remember my grandfather, a fisherman who lived on the river until he was 98, telling me he would never offer a fish something he wouldn't eat himself. Natural bait presented in the most natural way, light lines with no lead or as little lead as possible, so the bait floats rather than sits on the bottom in the mud. When I fish the river, I find a likely-looking bay, not too wide, with oyster leases and mangroves. There are some bays on the river with little waterfalls at the top, usually between valleys. These are top spots for bream. I try to use whatever the fish are feeding on. Around Mooney and at Parsley Bay there are yabbies, small crabs, nippers and soldier crabs. The yabbies are always around the edges of sandy spits and the green nippers you can find under rocks are better bait for bream than anything else. Local prawns are good, but they must be fresh, preferably live. Sometimes you can buy live prawns at the Fisherman's Co-op at Brooklyn. In writing this, I noticed that my approach to bream fishing has gone in a great circle, and now I'm back to a method not too far removed from the way I caught my first Hawkesbury bream. I went through times of mixing up some powerful, and at times very strange, pudding recipes. Then I started using bass plugs, then fishing the channels with heavy lead with long letters and French hooks. Now I'm sure the secret is natural bait and ultralight tackle, sometimes a kilo or less, The main problem with light gear on the river is the Hawkesbury's powerful tides. The way to fish is just one hour, either side of the tide, in the deep water, or around the shallow bays near the oyster leases. I find the hour at the top of the tide most productive, especially when it coincides with dawn or dusk. One perfect morning, it was high tide at 6am, and not a big tide, around 1.3 metres, which is a good breaming tide. I'd collected bait from the same bay the day before, small crabs and green nippers. There was no wind at all, so I was able to use a one kilo line. I use Maxima for its softness and translucency, a little Mitchell 4430Z reel coupled with a seven foot ugly stick rod that I've built up for bream. I sanded the blank back towards the butt so it makes a soft cast with the unweighted crab or nippers. I watch my bait fly out the mono sailing its arc like a spider web. Almost as soon as the kicking nipper floated to the bottom, whack! The line tightened on the surface, then went down in a solid rod-bending hookup. up Within an hour I had four beautiful bream in my keeper net, all big dark gold river fish, along with four school jews. Mulloway also very keen on a live nipper presented to them on a floating light line. When I'm asked how I went last time I fished the river, I get some very strange looks when I reply, not bad, but the bloody deweys were thicker than catfish. It's not far from the truth. Sometimes small dew or soapies and not-so-small dew can be a problem when fishing for bream. Catfish are usually the plague fish of the Hawkesbury, especially on big tides in summer. But when fishing a floating bait, they're not a problem, being bottom feeders. When fishing for bream this way, I keep the bait moving. I usually cast out, let the bait half sink, then move it in about half a metre at a time. I've often been smashed up by some monster bream almost on the surface. It's almost like fly fishing with bait. Another problem can be flathead. With such light line, any decent lizard cuts itself off in the first couple of head shakes, but I don't let anything distract me. When you decide to fish for bream, it's best to stick to it and not start chopping and changing rigs as soon as something else busts you up. Another important factor in breaming the Hawkesbury is burley. I use wheat soaked all night with a dash of tuna oil and a fillet of minced mullet mixed up with a bit of sand. Only use burley a half hour either side of the tide and just a handful every five minutes. One of the most deadly burly mixes is soldier crabs, chopped up and mixed with sand. I found this mix especially good when fishing the road bridge in a boat. The best brim spot around the bridge is three main pylons back from the Newcastle End and about four boat lengths out from the bridge, casting close towards the pylons. I only fish the road bridge on small tides and usually find the first hour of the run-in best – The tide stops for about half an hour at the bottom of the tide, and this is when the best bream are caught. Again, it works best with light line and no lead. If you can manage to get some live prawns and swim them off towards the pylons on light line, you'll find yourself pulling in bream as big as snapper. If you pick a low that corresponds with either dawn or dusk any time of the year, you can't go wrong. One time the best bream just under two kilos was not caught by me on my one-kilo line with a live nipper, but by my son, Orlando. Orlando was fishing for mulloway with a whole squid on ganged two-zero hooks when this classic Hawkesbury megabream decided it would prove there's an exception to every rule.
0: hear more Weekend Reads, you can subscribe to The Weekend Read in Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.